This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode 34 of the Doctor Who podcast. I'm finally out of my box. Apparently, all I had to do was leave a sonic screwdriver with James and he could open it from the outside. In this episode, we're going to catch up on the 14 hours worth of news we've missed out over Matt Smith's first season, season five. So sit down, strap in, kick back, and let's enjoy the Doctor Who podcast. So, hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Doctor Who podcast. With me in the camper van, I am joined by James. Hello, Tom. Great to have you back with us again. We missed you last episode. Well, it's nice to be able to move my arms around a little bit, truth be told. (laughs) Gotta be honest. And of course, Trev, hello. Hello, Tom. Lovely to hear your voice again, mate. Well, thank you for letting me out. It's a pleasure. And it's, it's, it's actually going to be... Quite good to have some intelligent conversation, I think, for both Trev and I. Well, I, I don't know, after, after the last episode plopped into my computer, <laughs> I wasn't sure what to expect. It doesn't plop, it doesn't plop. Well, I have a little bespoke basket now, so when they do come through my feeder, they're nicely arranged and in good order. <laughs> right, we have got so much news to catch up on, it's ridiculous. Where do you want to start? Well, let's let's start right at the moment, actually, because it's it's kind of fitting. Because in the last week, we understand that the uh, filming for the Christmas special has started, and they're down in Seaport, I believe, doing some filming. And um, I think that's quite close to Newport. Mm. No, no, I think that's fine. Here, I was thinking, <laughs> is Newport near the sea? I was thinking all that long ago, like Port Sea, and then I suddenly said Seaport. It, it's good to get into the psyche, your, your logic circuits, and yep. see how you. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, yeah. My, my my weird twisted thought processes, but the uh, but the BBC has confirmed that actor Michael Gambon and opera diva Catherine Jenkins will be in the Christmas special. They'll be filming until August, and uh, Michael Gambon has been in absolutely tons of things, probably most notably in The Singing Detective mm-hmm. and um, playing uh, a certain Dumbledore in a few of the Harry Potter films. So, uh, yes, I think that's a, that's a quite a big coup, actually, to have Michael in it. Definitely. It's great he's been in the Harry Potter movies, so he's used to working with a lead character that's got a magic wand, so that's quite good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do think he was the more inferior Dumbledore out of himself and Richard Harris, but, mm. um, yeah, he, he certainly is a huge name over here in the UK, and uh, he's been on, well, he's been in so many well-known productions, and, yeah, it'll be really good. So the only question is, how is his character going to interact with Matt Smith's Manic Doctor. I'll be really quite looking forward to seeing how that works. Do you know, it, it's, mm. not, it's nice to have Doctor Who back to the place where very well-known actors want to be in it. There was Bill Nye last year. Great to have him in there. But I get the feeling that along with people like John Cleese from the old days, you've got actors who want to be in it because they recognise it as being cool and good for their careers, you know? I, I agree. I, I think there is a fine line to be trod between having exceptionally fantastic and well-known actors and stunt casting. And that line was woefully misunderstood and misread in the late 80s. But personally, I don't have any real concerns over that now because, like you say, the, the programme is popular. People are using it uh, for a bit of a springboard, you know, for their career. And, you know, Matt Smith included. Mm. And, um, yeah, you know, it's going to be good for, for Michael Gambon to... Um, to have such a prominent place on Christmas Day. What I think is much more interesting, well, no, it's interesting in a different way, Mm. is is Catherine Jenkins. Mm. Now, Trevor, have you ever heard of Catherine Jenkins? I I can't say I have. I I only know what I'm seeing in this little news item here, that she's Mm. a a Welsh mezzo-soprano that sold about a gazillion albums. (laughs) And uh, and she hasn't acted before, apparently. No. Well, you know, it's not like Doctor Who hasn't got a history of having uh, attractive actresses uh, joining the acting team. I think Billy Piper had something going on in that respect. Um, But it's the Christmas special, and my understanding is, spoiler alert, it may somehow be based around uh, a Christmas carol. So Catherine Jenkins, for for all the fact that she is uh, a very well-known singer, may just be doing a cameo. Who knows? That does lead me into a question I wanted to ask both of you. Um, James, you've sort of put it in my mind with the stunt casting idea. Would you say that Kylie uh, in Voyage to the Damned was stunt casting or a wise choice? Ooh, (laughs) what a question. I, I think yes to both. In all honesty, she most certainly was there to draw in a few extra million viewers, which she did. Mm. However, she was an established actress as well. Um, It's hard to say. I I think they called it right because her involvement didn't interfere 
with the plot or the viewer's experience of watching a, a Doctor Who story. Mm. And ultimately, anyone who really does complain about her involvement, you know, well, the character died at the end anyway, so it's a bit of payoff. Mm. Well, I was going to say that uh, Catherine and uh, Kylie, I think, share a lot, that they both sold a gazillion albums and they both never acted before. <laughs> That's harsh. Yes. Let's move on. Um, and Trev, I think it's only right that you take this next news story. Well, uh, um, Matt Smith's season has just finished here in Australia and they decided to do what they call fast-tracking, which which a lot of the networks over here do with um, some of the more prominent American and British series where, where they basically get it on our screens as quickly as possible. Now, here in Australia, we've only been about two weeks behind what the UK showings were. So the Big Bang finished about two weeks ago here in Australia. It got some excellent, excellent viewing figures. It averaged about 928,000 viewers Mm. across all the capital cities for the 13 weeks it was on. Now, for Australia, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, if you can get over a million people watching your show then here in Australia, that, that's pretty damn good. The Big Bang came close to getting a million viewers across the uh, capital cities, and we have some pretty stiff competition when it comes to our uh, local networks here because they are littered, as, as I suppose they are in the UK, with uh, the ubiquitous reality shows, whether it be <laughs> cooking, singing or dancing. It was, of course, ABC's top-rating program pretty much for all the 13 weeks. I think the ABC feels a lot more assured than they did when they showed the specials last year because I yes. don't think they did that well, really, because probably because the specials are so spread out that there was one here, then three months later there was another one, then six months later there was two more, whereas because they've been able to show the Matt Smith season in a big 13-week run, it's it's really gone over well with the viewers and only being two weeks behind the UK, it's, it's rated its socks off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, has there been much publicity this time around for Series 5, Trev, in Australia? Well, I, I would take a guess and say yes, merely because I'm seeing a lot of chatter on the internet boards. I, I don't actually watch a lot of local TV myself, to be quite honest, um, because it's littered with too many reality programs. Mm. But there's been a lot of people talking about Doctor Who, and I think that's something that I've seen you know, for the whole five years since the new show has come back, that everyone is really excited when Doctor Who comes back on. Mm. And I think that coupled with the increased ratings we've seen for Matt Smith's season, I think the ABC would, would be incredibly happy at the moment with, mm. with the outcome. Well, the reason why I was asking was because I know that um, uh, media promotion and uh, newspaper coverage and so on was huge for the specials in Australia, and it was unprecedented. There are a number of stories actually reporting on the media uh, machine for David Tennant's mm. final few episodes, mm. whereas I haven't heard that much about Matt Smith. No. Um, and secondly, no. secondly, you're also a couple of weeks ahead of both Canada and the States, which I think is also a first. I think Space uh, and formerly before that, CBC, and also the uh, Sci-Fi Channel were ahead of ABC. So it seems like Doctor Who's gaining in momentum and popularity, but I I wonder whether or not that reflected the amount of money going into promoting it. You're probably pretty bang on the money there, James, because I'll probably gauge what's in the print media with regards to what my mum sends me in the email. Now, <laughs> she, she she often reads the newspapers and she'll print something out and or, or scan it for me and email it to me. Now, she sent me a few things to do with David Tennant leaving and all, all that stuff with, the, uh, with his last story, but she only sent me one thing to do with this new floppy-haired doctor that had turned up. Um, so whether that's any indication of the general ratio between tenant leaving coverage and Matt Smith arriving coverage, I, I don't know, but uh, yeah. Interesting. That segues neatly into our next story, really, which concerns uh, a fantastic innovation that Space, the Canadian broadcaster of Doctor Who of uh, Season 5, has has come up with. They've decided on the very final day of their broadcast this series, so I think that's for the 24th of July, they're they're actually planning a special edition in front of a live studio audience, and it's called the Inner Space Live Doctor Who Season Finale, and after show it will take place at a particular address, which you assume is a studio of some kind. The broadcast will take place between 9 and 11 in the evening, and it will include a special panel discussion, interviews, and live web chat, and will be hosted by Inner Space's Teddy Wilson, who I'm assuming is a uh, some kind of well-known celebrity presenter 
in um, in Canada. But that, I thought that's an absolutely fantastic idea. It's something that you probably get a lot of the podcasts trying to do, <laughs> essentially. But it's the first time I've heard a broadcaster deliberately try and get people to discuss an episode, especially after sitting them in a studio and basically playing them a TV episode in a studio. Mm. Great well, idea. It, it's interesting you say that. I remember seeing footage from New York. Uh, about how uh, the first episodes were shown and how people queued up and they got really excited and they were sat in the, in the cinema screaming and cheering at different parts of the, of, of the show. Um, and when you think about the way that Doctor Who is on screen these days, it does it does work quite well to have a live studio audience actually doing the oohs and ahs because it's a lot more of a roller coaster than it used to be. Mm, I, I think that's probably oh. very, very American. Um, you know, it, it's much more part of the American culture than it is for UK. Mm. I, I, I think you would be able to get away with it as they did with doing the tour in schools for younger viewers. Mm. But the, the coverage of the huge publicity um, drive that they did over in New York was on confidential, wasn't it? Yeah. So just making certain they were seeing yes, the same yes. thing. Yeah. Um and, and that, the average age of people who went along to that was considerably higher than school age. Mm. And I don't I don't think that would work here. How about in Australia, Trev? What's what's the average age of fan like over there? Oh gee, I, <laughs> I, I I don't really think I totally agree with what you say about an average age anyway, because I, I think Doctor Who, especially these days, encompasses such a wide age group of fans. But I do agree with what you say about um, because in that confidential, they they did seem to show Matt Smith only visiting schools, but they even visited his um, old primary school, school or high school yeah. or mm. secondary school or whatever it was. Um, whereas when they showed the US coverage of the premiere of Eleventh Hour, it was on a big screen. Uh, you you had to get tickets and all that sort of stuff, mm. and people were disappointed. And and the majority of people there were. I, I, I suppose you could call middle age or, you know, sort of 20s or 30s, basically. It's interesting in Australia, before the new show came on, the, the average age of Doctor Who fans kept getting older and older and older. And I think that's probably pretty much all the way it is around the world because yeah. it, it's difficult to get a new fan for a show when all they're spitting out is books and audios. Mm. Um, so I think we've still got a large proportion of fans over here that are older and that are, I suppose, more critically analysing it. So I think something like the American experience would work over here that if they did show it on the big screen in one of the capital cities, um, it, it would go over really well. But I'm not sure whether, you know, if Matt Smith came out here and did a tour of some schools, <laughs> mm. whether that would work as well as, you know, some big media event like they did in the US. Yeah, I mean, that, that's my point, really. Um, it, I mean, of course, you know, Doctor Who appeals across the ages. I just think it's interesting to see the cultural differences across the world as to how they attack the promotion. And uh, Yeah, they did do cinema screenings at the 11th hour over here in the UK, but I think there were about four or five of them. That, that was about it. Whereas in America, mm. I know they had a focused, you know, very high-density programme. They packed an awful lot in to a very short space of time and they had screening after screening. Um, and I know they were moving around quite a bit. So just interested in, as to how they go about attacking the market in terms of promoting it in different countries. Oh, can I just ask one question, which I think might put this in context a bit. Trev, how many channels are there in Australia? When you were growing up, how many channels were there available to you in Australia? When I was growing up, yeah. there was probably um, five. Okay. We had wow. seven, two, seven, nine, ten. Actually, four, and then SBS came to us. I think I believe in the early nineties, which is a like a multicultural channel. Now that we've moved to digital, each of the local channels have started spawning um, like sports only channels or extra channels, like the local channel seven, which has a seven two channel, mm. which shows classic TV shows and classic movies. So we're we're slowly expanding here, which is probably why pay television was much more readily accepted here because we didn't have anything on our free-to-air channels that was worth watching in terms of volume. So pay television worked really well here up until recently, but now digital's catching up. Mm. The pay TV providers like Foxtel and Optus are getting really, really desperate and really, really worried because people are realising that they can see everything for free now on what the major stations are offering. Plus the rise of the internet stops television being a service. Absolutely. Yeah. I was really waiting for that because that's, it's like the internet was just designed to give you the content that you want. Why would anybody sit waiting for someone to broadcast something when you can request it and be given it? Absolutely, absolutely. Whether it's a legal option or whether it's an illegal option, mm. um, the, the internet has broadened certainly Australian. I mean, 
Australia is the hotbed of people downloading all the pirated American and UK stuff pretty much as soon as it airs. <laughs> so, like I said earlier, I, I watch very little Australian TV because most of my stuff is downloads. Mm. Because I've got it there to watch when I want, how I want, in whatever format I want. Mm. I, I'm not tied to when a station decides when they're going to show a particular show that week and then they'll change their mind the following week and then the week after that. Mm. Um, There's just no consistency. I I think it's um, probably something that's very true and it applies to technology across the board, not just with television. I mean, we're using Skype to communicate for free, you know, almost the furthest distance you can possibly... Um, you know, you can get on, on planet Earth, and that's from the UK to Australia. Mm. But if you consider iPlayer is basically now a function that you would use on your computer, which is now transferable onto television through Virgin, certainly in the UK. Sky have got something very similar. Mm. Is it just a case of all of these individual little markets that were once very, very separate are now actually coming together, and the actual markets themselves are trying to put a premium on the cost? to try and keep them separate. But I think that's only going to last maybe 10, 15 years. There won't be long before you just have an yeah. entertainment panel within your home and you'll be able to speak to people, you'll be able to see people, you'll be able to watch films, you'll be able to watch TV mm. as and when you want, whenever you want. And how much of a tangent is this? But having said that, it's um, <laughs> it, it's something that we examine um, when as, as fans of Doctor Who because it applies because Doctor Who is now delivered in so many different uh, forums and media across the world and they put such a great deal of effort into keeping these things separate and us fans you know basically the consumers are doing everything we can to fight against it to say no we want it when we want how we want it and if you don't give it to us in the way that we want it we'll use our superior technology <laughs> i torrent to get what we want and there will come a point there will come a point when both sides are reconciled but i think that will probably be you know a long way off in the yeah. future uh, I- absolutely everything's going to become very blurred at one point where you'll reach the point where you'll press a button and you won't know where it's coming from that you will just know that it's arriving. I think that point's happened with Tom already on a Saturday night. <laughs> it's good, though. I mean, th- there's no ex- exclusivity. You know, we, we stop thinking about when something's broadcast, generally speaking. You know, the only events TV that I'm really ever bothered about is Doctor Who. And even then, sometimes it's like, you know, I don't have to see it when it first broadcasts. I can always catch it an hour later or two hours later. Um, mm. And that attitude mm. to my media is something that is very, very new. I mean, you must remember the days when if you missed something, you missed it. But now... If I, you know, oh, yes. You know, now if you miss it, it's like, well, okay, I'll just catch it a couple of days later. But then again, it, is, is it unusual that a, fa- um, that a show about time travel is one of the first things to bridge that particular gap? You know? <laughs> <laughs> now, do you remember, you two, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was something known as a fanzine, and it was produced on paper. It's a bit like, um, ah, we have Tom's telephone. Excuse me, hang on a second. Your listening is important to us. Please bear with us. We'll come back to you as soon as we can. Tom will not be away from you for too long. <laughs> Rest assured, listeners, he will return. Please do not rip your earphones out in frustration. He will be back. Let's have some music in the meantime. Let's have some on-hold music courtesy of Tom. Tom has now left the building and it's just uh, Trevor and I once again. You know, I, I get the feeling Tom doesn't like us very much. He keeps going in his box, running away. I don't know. Um, mm. Anyway, <laughs> the next story we were going to be talking about is uh, fanzines. Um, do you remember the days of when you used to have tangible, physical paper fanzines? Uh, paper? <laughs> Remind me what that is again. It's a physical form of pixels. Oh, right. Like that stuff. Oh, okay. I, I, I think I've seen them in museums. Yes, I do remember fanzines. I, I probably had my hand or two in a few fanzines when I was a younger lad back in the mm. late 80s, early 90s. But yes, um, have, have fanzines come back? 
Well, kind of. And I'm not sure whether this is a resurgence or whether or not it's just a kind of nostalgia trip that certain things go through. And I think it's probably following the success, really, of um, a very well-known Doctor Who fanzine called Shooty Dog Thing. And it's um, relatively new, I think. It was 2005 that uh, a chap called Paul Castle started editing a, a physical fanzine. He put it as a PDF as well. The reason why he did it was because fanzines had all but disappeared in the advent of the internet. And it would appear that due to the success of that and uh, Hearst Books have recently released a compilation of all of the really, really good articles in Shooty Dog Thing. And as a, off the back of the success of that, there's been two new fanzines launched. One of which is free and is called Fish Fingers and Custard, which I understand you've taken a look at, Trev. I have, actually. I um, came across this earlier in the week and, and, and I'm always a sucker for lists. And I'm a bigger sucker for lists that have to do with Doctor Who. And they've got a wonderful thing in it, which is like um, a bunch of lists to do with Doctor Who, uh, five top things. And, and I'll just read you some of the titles and uh, you've really got to go download this. And you can get it off their website at fishcustardfanzine.blogspot.com. It's really, really funny and it's very well worth a look and it's free, so it's an absolute bonus. Some of their top five lists, five things I expect Matt Smith to own, five things that would happen if Doctor Who or Torchwood was ever broadcast on Fox in the US, and one of my favourites, five pointless castings in Doctor Who. Now, that list really made me realise what fans these guys are of Doctor Who when one of the uh, items they have listed for the pointless castings is Gerald Flood. Now, these guys know their Doctor Who, and and my hat's off to you for um, this fancy, and it's a really, really good read. No, I must must um, go online and take a look at that at some point. Um, but the other fanzine that's been released, this is one that you have to pay for, um, is called Panic Moon. Um, because you have to pay for it, neither Trevor and I have had a look at it. But um, we, we have... Uh, <laughs> review taken, copy, review, <laughs> review copy. copy. Yeah, just, just a small little hint there, uh, editor guys. Um, anyway, we have got a, a list of content. So five things that are in Panic Moon <laughs> are... Explorations of the characters of the 11th Doctor and Amy. A review of the K9 series, which would be interesting because I've not seen a single minute of footage of that series. A look at the redesign of the Daleks. That'll be interesting. I'm assuming that will probably be bile in written form. Um, most fans seem to be you know, not particularly keen on them, shall we say. A roundup of other recent paper zines in 2010's fanzine Renaissance. So they are referring to it as a renaissance, and a review of Big Finish's recent output, So, and a few other bits and pieces to, besides. So, yeah, it's good to see that the fanzine medium is making a bit of a return, even if it is a temporary thing. Um, then it will certainly, I think, satisfy the nostalgia itches that many fans of Doctor Who get from time to time. And like you said, James, because you have to pay for this one, you actually get a paper copy of this one. So it's it's really a true fanzine in the true sense of what fanzines are about because before the internet, before podcasting, there, there was fanzines. And certainly here in Australia, they were, they were really, really big. We had stuff like Data Extract and we had mags and uh, we had Chameleon Circuit and all that sort of stuff. And they were the pretty much the quickest and most authoritative way of getting hold of information about what was happening with your favourite series because you couldn't jump on the internet and check Gallifrey Base or anything like that. You, you had to check with the local clubs and what was in their fanzine. So it, it's really, really fantastic the fanzines are making a resurgence because some of the most creative stuff made an appearance in fanzines initially. And, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head, Kate Orman, who's written some of the mm. new adventures and uh, some of the missing adventures back in the 90s. She had her start in Australian fandom with Australian fanzines. So it's a great way to get your stuff out there for people to see and you know, sort of mm. get some critical feedback. No, absolutely. And I think pretty much the entire set of current series writers at some point had written an article uh, in, in a fanzine. Uh, I know certainly mm. Paul Cornell, Gareth Roberts, Stephen Moffat, Russell T Davis all had articles, I think, in Celestial Toy Room, which was the Doctor Appreciation Society's official magazine. And you could call that a fanzine, if you like, done slightly more professionally and edited Absolutely. at one point, I yeah. think, by, by Gary Russell. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is the kind of stuff that all of the current crop of writers and people involved in the series got involved in. It was this was their entry Absolutely. really to, to fandom and what is now their careers. Yeah. 
And especially now that we are getting so many writers from the fandom community, like you say, Mark Gatiss and uh, Gareth yeah. Roberts, have, have made their start writing fan publications or, or fan articles, then say moving up to writing new adventures or missing adventures you know, in, in the Virgin or the BBC range, and then moving up to, I suppose, the ultimate holy grail, working on Doctor Who, which Absolutely. of course they both are now, so yeah. Bravo. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolutely fantastic way. It was a fantastic way to start what is now their careers, but I very much doubt they actually believe that would be the case, you know, when they started <laughs> fanzines. And it, it's interesting, well, actually. I've, I've, I've heard um, a conversation like this um, on another podcast now, and I can't remember which one it was, uh, where whoever it was who was being interviewed said that podcasting and, you know, video podcasting is the kind of modern-day equivalent of old fanzines. So who knows, Trev, it is. you know? It is. In 20 years' time, we might be making someone's tea on a new series. You never know. Oh, well, well they, they, there could be the spume of destiny <laughs> written by Trevor Gensch and Marty Parrott. Who knows? Written, written. That wasn't written. That was made up on the hoof, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, do go, dear, do go and check that out, guys. It is one of the best Who casts that Trevor Marty did, and there's been some talk about it on the DWP forums of late. Uh, unfortunately, the original Who cast feed seems to have broken, um, so you can't pick it up off there. But we, we will do some research, see if we can make it available to you. And we're going to track one down. Yes, <clears throat> and you never know. Tom and I, since neither of us were involved in that particularly, might do a critical review of the Spume of Destiny. <laughs> Does it hold up after all these years, <laughs> even though it's still in the future? Oh, my oh, goodness. Yeah. Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Our, our next bit of news today is a veteran costume designer, Barbara Kidd, is returning to Doctor Who, and she's doing the uh, costume design duties for the Christmas special and apparently the 2011 series. Mm. Now, any Doctor Who fan worth their salt knows that Barbara Kidd has uh, worked on the series before. Um probably most notably for the uh, Pertwee stories, Frontier and Space, The Green Death, Monster of Peladon, um, and, and she worked on Invasion of the Dinosaurs as well. Um, and she worked on a few Tom Baker stories and one Peter Davison story as well. So she's certainly got a wonderful Doctor Who pedigree. I just hope we don't get some of the wonderful um, hairstyles or costume <laughs> designs from The Green Death or Monster of Peladon in the Christmas special of 2011. So, Barbara, if you're listening... Um, you did some wonderful work, but we don't need the miner's hairstyle from Monster Peloton to appear in the Christmas special, please. Don't listen to Trevor Barbara. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's funny, actually, I never really took an interest in any of the costume designing until I ran into Louise Page at Gallifrey this year. And she was the costume designer on, uh, I think it was series one to four or two to four. I can't remember whether or not she was involved from um, from series one. But the way that she talked about the design of um, of each of the costumes that she'd come up with and seeing her expression as to how interested fans were in, in, in the way that these monsters were brought to life, it really sparked my interest. So, yeah, I'll be interested very much to see what um, fresh approach Barbara can bring to the costume mm. designing role. Some very exciting news next too that uh, Nick Briggs is currently working on some uh, big finish scripts that will star Tom Baker yeah. as the Doctor. Now, now for those that have listened to podcasts for quite a while, um, back in one of the last Who casts that I was involved with, uh, Seb from uh, DWO interviewed Tom, and he let slip basically that um, he's very, very interested in doing some uh, big Finnish audios with, with the bods. And uh, I think he was pretty much just waiting for their phone call. So it sounds like they've got on the blower and um, something's going to be happening very soon with uh, Tom Baker as the Doctor in Big mm. Finish. That's incredibly exciting. It is absolutely brilliant news if it comes about. Um, and, and I think, yeah, this, this story has been quite an interesting story if you look back over the history. Certainly, Seb's interview with Tom Baker was the thing that got Nicholas Briggs interested in um, in contacting Tom Baker once again. And um, I think it was documented quite well in a Nick Briggs interview that... Um, the Flashing Blade conducted, mm, and mm. Uh, that that was that was just fascinating to hear because it shows the power of podcasting. And um, Seb, I think, emailed Nicholas on exactly the same day uh, that he interviewed Tom Baker, and Nicholas Briggs said, "Yeah, yeah, right, heard it all before." 
And then Seb actually sent him a clip of Tom Baker saying, yeah, I'll yep. be interested in working with Big yep. Finish, yep. Uh, which is great. And since then, it's been kind of official, unofficial, um, both at the same time, really, because I don't think Briggs really wants to commit to saying, yes, it's going to happen. Because I think they've come up with stories in the past where Tom Baker has just said, no, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Pretty been, been, much, yeah. been quite derisory about it. So Briggs has done this quite clever marketing campaign, really. He's, he's dropped it into um, a lot of different articles um, in the latest Vortex magazine, which is a kind of fanzine, really, or it's a, well, maybe it's a bit of an infomercial for Big Finish, really, in magazine format uh, that they send out with all of the CDs. And certainly within the editorial there, he mentions that he's been writing uh, some Tom Baker scripts, and he mentions it again in the letters page. I think we are the closest to Tom Baker ever agreeing to star as the fourth Doctor for Big Finish. And as mm. you say, Trevor, very exciting times, and I can't wait to hear it. I really can't. It opens up some fantastic opportunities, I think, for um, uh, companions that featured with him to actually appear with him alongside in those audios. I mean, it, it could be a whole wonderful new future for the Big Finish audios. And oh, yeah. What makes me more excited about this, that because Tom, I suppose, and he would probably agree that he's certainly very much his own man and that he can be fickle sometimes with regards to what he says yes to and what he says no to, but because there's also news that uh, the BBC are working with him um, to do something called the, the Demon Quest audios. Mm. Now, they, they did some... Just off mic, what were the last audios they did for the BBC? What, Hornet, what were they Hornet's called? Nest. Hornet's, Hornet's Nest. Hornet's Nest. Now, um, Tom did some audios, I think, last year with the BBC, the Hornet's Nest audios, which were uh, quite critically well received, and we've certainly reviewed them um, back on the uh, WhoCast. Um, so they're, they're moving, I suppose, into the second series there with uh, Tom doing stuff with the BBC. So if he's got Doctor Who on his mind, basically, I think the the – um, possibility of him then going, okay, I'll do big finish as well, is that much more possible? So, yeah, fantastic. Let's hope, let's hope so, because I think the original reaction was quite the opposite. Uh, they were thinking, well, it's, it's just another kind of, you know, oh, what's the word? It was just another snub, really, to big finish. Not only had he declined them, but he'd said yes to what is essentially a rival company. But mm. Demon, Demon Quest, yeah, they're another set of five plays. Richard Franklin is returning to the role of Mike Yates, and it's written once again. All five plays have been written once again by Paul Mars. So clearly Hornet's Nest was um, quite successful. This was actually announced. I heard it at Gallifrey um, from Nick Briggs. So, um, you know, it was quite an interesting way of of marketing it. But, yeah, I mean, I am glad he's returning. And I I, I didn't dislike Hornet's Nest. I think the first couple of plays were a bit clunky. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that Tom Baker hasn't spurned Doctor Who completely. No, no. So watch this space, I suppose. Watch this space. Great. Fire away with number nine, James. Okay, I'm just reading it. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote you, it. I, I didn't. I you copied and pasted it. copied and pasted it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's different. Right, okay. Now, the second BBC Doctor Who prom is taking place on Saturday the 24th of July. It's going to be broadcast live on BBC Radio 3 from half past seven to 9.45, that's UK time, and will be available worldwide on the iPlayer afterwards, so it's not going to be region-locked, which is good. I don't think much radio content is region-locked, actually. I think that's restricted to most of the programming. We understand that the following tracks from Doctor Who composer Murray Gold will be in the programme, and songs will include... Now, I don't know whether this is going to enlighten uh, any of our listeners, really, because I'm not sure whether or not any of these pieces of music have actually been given names before, but The Madman in a Box, An Untimely Arrival, I Am the Doctor, Battle in the Skies, Amy, Liz, Lizards, Vampires and Vincent. Anyway, I won't go on. There's a few more as well. Um, But there'll be a 20-minute interval that will be filled on Radio 3 with a documentary looking at the weird and wonderful sound world of Doctor Who's incidental music. And that's going to be called Dance of the Daleks. And it's going to be presented by a chap called Matthew Sweet, who is a journalist, a big Doctor Who fan, and he's written one big Finnish play, I think. So make sure you tune your radios into Radio 3 on the 24th of July at about half past seven. So are they not doing something big and grand like they did with the last one actually on TV with all the monsters 
wandering down the aisles? Is it just going to be an audio-only thing, is it? doesn't look like it. I think it's going to be audio-only, and the reason for that is because they're doing something, I can't remember the actual title of it now, but Tour of the Monsters or something, which I think is going to be much more similar uh, to the previous Doctor Who prom, um, where you're going to have music, you're going to have a specially recorded excerpt from Matt Smith and uh, Karen Gillan, and that is on tour. You can go and book ah, tickets for that okay. if, they, if they're not sold out already. Um, and again, I think it might be called Music of the Monsters. I'm not sure. Some of our listeners will probably be cursing my um, inaccuracy again. And there was me um, criticising Stephen Moffat for no attention to detail last week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yet something is happening uh, that's similar to the Doctor Who prom, uh, but not identical. So I think this is um, purely audio. Excellent, excellent. Now, we'll just make a quick mention that... Um Two of the three uh, video adventure games have been released on the BBC website. Now, these are the adventure games that uh, people with PCs can download in the U of K and play on their local computers. I believe currently at this stage only the U of K people can play them, that they are for... Oh, no, no, no. I think City of the Daleks is available worldwide now. But that, but you, you not... actually have to pay for that, don't you? Oh yeah, you got to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. yeah, yeah. No, it's yes. it's not a free thing because I I believe it's free to you guys, but the rest of us have to pay uh, for it. I'm desperately trying to remember what the name of the second one is, and I can't remember. It's something of the Cyberman. It's uh, Return of the Cyberman. Is it Blood? Is it Blood? Blood? I think it might be Blood. Yes. I'm not really worried what it is at the moment, actually, because I can't play it. I've I've only been able to play the first one at the moment, so. Um, uh. I think maybe in a few weeks we'll have to uh, have a bit of a review of these uh, video adventures and see how they stack up because from from all intents and purposes they they really seem to be promoted as extensions of season five that you are meant to consider them as part of the Matt Smith season. So at some point we should actually have a look at them and see whether they stand up as part of the uh, Matt Smith oeuvre. Now, I think they've put the most effort they've ever put into something outside of the actual TV series. And I know there was a good couple of days spent motion capturing both Matt Smith and Karen Gillan's physical movements. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's certainly been billed as an extension, as you say, to Series 5. And we'll have to wait and see how good they really are. And for me, I'm going to need to try and figure out how to download them. That's going to be real fun. <laughs> <laughs> Torchwood Children of Earth has won an award, and justly so, for Best Presentation on Television for BBC America. Um, The 2010 Saturn Awards were presented by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films, and they recognise excellence in genre fields of movie and television. Uh, Children of Earth was transmitted on the BBC America in July 2009. Now, the uh, series was stripped down to a Monday to Friday format in a 75-minute slot, which basically means that the original stories were, what, 50, 60 minutes in length? So they're chopping in the first 15 minutes of the next episode, and presumably they'd give you a recap next week mm. or, or the next day. So it, it's a way, I suppose, of um, getting through the uh, entire series more quickly. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I think it's a, a good thing that Torture Children of Earth have actually won something because, you know, you, you hear all of these, well, what Radio Free Scaro call fictitious awards because there are so many different award bodies now mm. and you don't really... You don't. You haven't heard of them apart from the obvious ones like BAFTAs and so on, um, until these programs actually win the awards. And you know, Torture of Children of Earth didn't actually win anything. And as little as I liked it, and I really didn't like uh, season three of Chalk- Torchwoods, I did appreciate that it was an incredibly popular novel piece of television. And yeah, I, I felt novel. it should have won some awards. Be- novel, novel. Let's say that, novel. That's yes. the first time I've ever heard Children of Earth described as novel. That's almost as bad as saying quaint. That That's terrible. <laughs> well, I didn't like it, so I think novel is actually quite a compliment, to be honest. <laughs> and it was novel. I'm sorry, it was fairly original. You name me another piece of television that's been on British TV or anywhere else for that matter that has any kind of real resemblance to the way Children of Earth was either told as a story or the way in which it was actually broadcast. I totally agree. I, I, I thought it was incredibly interesting the way it was presented, but you know, using words like novel and original <laughs> aren't really complimenting it and aren't really denigrating it. I mean, as much as I hate Torchwood itself, I thought Children of Earth was absolutely fantastic and riveting viewing. 
That's a novel opinion. Me, <laughs> if it gets someone like me who detested the first two series of Torchwood to watch it and enjoy it, then it's got to be a little bit more than novel and original. I have nothing more to say. <laughs> <laughs> Former Doctor Who director Pennant Roberts has died at the age of 69. Um, he, his major contribution was to the classic series of Doctor Who. Um, he did his first story in 1977 with the fourth Doctor, Face of Evil, and also did other fourth Doctor stories such as The Sunmakers and Pirate Planet. And uh, he also directed what ended up being, uh, I suppose, a story that was never seen, Sharda. And uh, he returned for the fifth and sixth Doctor with stories like Warriors of the Deep and Time Lash. So... Um, certainly a great loss to the Doctor Who community, Pennant Roberts. Auction House Bonhams have uh, had a recent auction, as is their want, and the most popular item was the uh, Christopher Eccleston TARDIS used during his uh, season of Doctor Who, and that went for an astounding £10,800. A couple of the other items that went up there was a console built for uh, the Doctor Who exhibition at Longleat, which went for £900. And most exciting for me was a, a Cyberman helmet used in stories like the Moonbase and the Tomb of the Cyberman. That went for nearly £8,000. Now, for me, that's the most exciting bit of the whole auction, really. A classic series, really, really classic series Cyberman helmet from the black and white era. That should have gone more than some silly, wrong-coloured, misshapen, windowed TARDIS from the Christopher Eccleston months, <laughs> I tell you. But what do you actually do with a Cyberman head once you've bought it? I mean, it's not the kind of thing that you're able to just mount on a wall, is it? Oh, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. That would be the perfect thing <laughs> I would do with it. I would put it up on a wall and just stare at it. <laughs> I'm watching too much of Grand Designs these days, I'm afraid. I'm seeing too much bespokeness about. And I watched one the other day where this guy actually mounted a classic motorcycle up on his living room wall. And, the, you know, the guy who hosted it walked in and went, oh, that beautiful bespoke motorcycle. And went, oh, my God. So I'm going to say, if you, whoever bought the classic series Cyberman head from the Moon Basin Tomb of the Cyberman, they should mount it on their living room wall and just look at it and go... That's a beautifully bespoke Cyberman helmet. but um, And also two Daleks from the classic series fetched nearly £5,000 each. And a model of K9 went for £1,200. So some insane amount of money for people that shouldn't be able to afford this. And I wish I could afford it because I'd be there buying everything I could possibly get my hands on. So... Yeah, bravo. No, I just I just think it reflects the popularity of the show as it is at the moment, that people are willing to shell out so much money uh, for what are in essence, you know, just trinkets or memorabilia from the from the show. Well, absolutely. I mean that's that, that that's something that's been in my mind lately actually too, because the the new series are so popular. Does that translate to classic series stuff being incredibly popular as well? Because just from a purely personal point of view, I've got a shed full of stuff down there just taking up space that I thought, well, it should go to a home of a fan that actually wants it. Is it worth any money? And I'd be really interested to hear from our listeners. Is classic series stuff just as interesting as getting ahead of a Slitheen or getting a Matt Smith Sonic Screwdriver or something like that? Is owning something from a pre-1989 episode just as exciting as owning something that David Tennant held? I don't know. I think it's interesting. I think it's possible, but I think it very much depends on who it is who would be looking to buy memorabilia. I think if it's fans who you know have a history with the show, then yes, without a shadow of a doubt, I think classic who memorabilia would have benefited from the popular of the marketing and the merchandise of the new series but if it's someone who is only interested maybe youngsters young enthusiasts they're not going to be that interested in something that you know they probably wouldn't recognize from the show 20 30 years or so ago mm. but yeah i'll be interested to find out what fans a are prepared to pay and um b whether or not they'd even be interested in, in some old classic series merchandise. Well, please let us know at feedback at com. What excites you about the classic series memorabilia? If something came up for auction, what would you pay for it and what would you be interested in uh, seeing on the table at a bottom of auction? So, yeah, please let us know. This is a slight uh, tangent here, Trev, but um, the... 
the one thing that I have been interested in, and I'm not amazingly interested in merchandise. I mean, I've got a couple of Daleks sitting on a bookcase. But beyond that, I've never been that interested in getting, oh, the Sonic Screwdriver. You know how our Tom is absolutely crazy. He got ever so excited about the Sonic Screwdriver being delivered <laughs> to him through the post. Um, but one thing I have seen that's been released by Character Options are figures, brand new figures, of all 11 Doctors. And it's been presented in a really kind of decorative display case. And it costs something ridiculous. I think it's like nearly 60 quid or something. But it's something that deep down inside of me, I think, yeah, I really, really want that. And there's nothing else released, you know, that you can, for want of a better word, call toys. Mm. (laughs) That I've really felt the need to get hold of um, recently. How, how about you? Does that appeal to you? Well, I was actually going to ask you a counter question to that. Is, is it more from the viewpoint of owning an adult collectible? Because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of stuff these days and I was in my local Kmart here the other day buying something else and they had a Star Wars lightsaber on the shelf oh, there and, yes. and on the box it specifically distincted itself from the normal $20 kids' lightsabers by saying it was an adult collectible. Of course, it had an adult collectible price, of course, but are are you more interested in owning these because they're more collectible or because they're toys? I think it's just because they look cool. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's nothing more scientific than that. I mean, the the phrase adult collectible, I think, could be a little bit misconstrued. Yeah, well, true. Um, But uh, but I, I think... No, it, it's nothing to do with it just deliberately being marketed at an elder age of fan. No, it's definitely not. I mean, I wouldn't really mind whether or not these figures were deliberately intended. And I think they probably are intended, to be honest, mm. for, for the younger fan. And they are essentially, you know, the same as what they did with all of the Star Wars toys. And they were incredibly successful, you know, the, the, the world over, um, people thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed owning you know their mini luke skywalkers and so on and maybe this set is kind of presenting itself in such a way that's plugged into my childhood memories of collecting star wars toys Possibly. but i think also there's a sense of completion uh, about this particular product because it goes all the way back it's got a new design for the very first doctor and i, I just think that's fantastic and yeah rather than buying the individual figures doesn't really have any kind of appeal to me. I mean, I think I'm probably trying to make something that doesn't make sense make sense by trying to get you to validate it. (laughs) Well, I'll I'll try and validate for you a little bit by by giving you my perspective and actually answering the question you asked me. I'm not particularly interested in owning, and I've said this on the show before, probably in the WhoCast as well, in owning figurines of the actors or the monsters. I'm very interested in owning... Daleks and Cybermen and mechanical representations of stuff that's been in the series. But I've never been particularly thrilled in owning like a three-foot-high Tom Baker doll or a plastic representation of David Tennant. Um, So this particular series that you're talking about doesn't interest me so much, but there are certainly series out there that I've seen on eBay, for example, that are representations of all the Cybermen all the way from the classic series through to the modern era. And that excites me a lot. It's incredibly expensive. It excites me a lot, so I'm, I'm more interested in the mechanical side of things than, I suppose, the flesh and blood model, I suppose, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I, I think it just appeals to different people, perhaps. Mm. But they must be very successful because they've certainly upped the output in terms of what they're producing these days. And I was in Forbidden Planet in London probably about two or three weeks ago, and the sheer range mm. of, of, of toys, and I mean toys, you know, from the actual figures themselves all the way through to you know little puzzles that just happen to have the doctor who logo mm. um you know plastered all over them it's it, it's just incredible it, it was nothing nothing like i remembered when no. doctor who was at its higher popularity you know in the past it's interesting the you that you use the word completest because i was thinking as soon as you said that there's no way these days you could be anywhere near a completest fan unless you had inherited billions of dollars from a old relative or something because I, I don't think we're seeing a level of merchandise we've really seen since probably Dalek mania of the 60s and 70s that mm. there's so much stuff out there that unless you're incredibly savvy, incredibly wealthy or incredibly in debt, there is no way you, 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 <laughs> there is no way you could possibly keep up and believe me, I would love to be able to keep up with half the stuff that's out there. But there is no way that you could possibly justify to yourself to keep up with 
all the fantastic stuff that's out there because not only is there the quantity, but I think there's the quality too out there now because even stuff like Matt Smith's Sonic Screwdriver, which I suppose I've never been really interested in so far as, as, as far as a collectible, but as soon as that came out, it looks like a toy, but it's so well put together and so finely crafted that I, I snapped it up very, very quickly and, and, and I've got one myself just like Tom. <laughs> oh, I didn't realise that. Mm. So I am the only host of this podcast without a modern-day sonic screwdriver. You're going to have to rectify that, I'm afraid. <laughs> I suddenly feel like an outsider. <laughs> but there you go. But in terms of what you were talking about um, being a completionist, you know, the definition of completionist, I think, has changed massively. And that's because, as you say, the, the sheer quantity of stuff out there. Now, I, I still consider myself to be a com- completionist. I'm not even sure if I'm inventing words here. But in, in terms of the DVD, I, I will buy every Doctor Who DVD that comes out um, and at some point I do want the complete set probably before they start releasing them on Blu-ray all the classic ones as well and um, also Big Finish uh, pretty much every, anything Big Finish released certainly in the main range I mean well I'm a subscriber so I, I, I will get the CDs and those areas I think I've had to define you know mm. in my mind that's what I'm going to concentrate on if I start talking about the toys if I start talking about the books if I start thinking about all of the other bits and pieces out there one I think my wife will have just cause to leave me on the basis <laughs> that I'm investing in Doctor Who merchandise rather than the mortgage and <laughs> um, but also you know where do you put all this stuff <laughs> absolutely I mean it's 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 interesting we've reached the point now that you can use terms like niche completist that that <laughs> that, that you can concentrate on certain aspects you know whether it be in your case the audios and the uh, dvds but still term yourself someone that collects everything to do with that so i think that's really the way you've got to be that you've got to concentrate i think that's so right with so many things these days with the television shows you watch with the films you follow there is so much content out there i mean i was reading something the other day where someone said every single day american tv releases a week worth of content and that is just just so true that it is impossible to keep up with everything that you could possibly be even mildly interested in. So you've really got to start being a niche completist in everything. It, it's funny, actually. This, this kind of conversation came up at Gallifrey on the Doctor Who podcasts panel, and that was really fascinating. And, and, and People were talking about, well, how do you decide which Doctor Who podcasts to listen to? Mm. <laughs> because I think there are about 65 members of the Doctor Who podcast alliance now. Yeah. And there is no one. I mean... Who, who can sit there and listen to every episode of every Doctor Who podcast. You've got to be selective. Mm. And with being selective, there's always a danger that you're going to be missing something that's really good. Mm. <laughs> Our last bit of news for this episode is uh, a bit of upcoming news to do with the Sarah Jane Adventures. Now, they've just released some of the titles and the uh, uh, writer's for some of the stories for what series four, I believe. I think it's a series. It's a series four. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, the the Nightmare Man, written by Joseph Lidster. Uh, Vault of Secrets by Phil Ford. Death of the Doctor by RTD. Empty Planet by Gareth Roberts. Lost in Time by Rupert Late. And Goodbye Sarah Jane Smith by Gareth Roberts and Clayton Hickman. Now, I think apart from Rupert and possibly Clayton, I think they're all pretty much veteran Sarah Jane Adventure writers. I don't think Clayton's written something for SJA before, has he? I don't think so. I th- in fact, I think this may well be his first television credit. Ah. Um, I think could be com- could be completely wrong there. Having said that, he has written with Gareth Roberts uh, on a number of occasions in the past. He's written two big Finnish audios. That's yes. the one Doctor and Bang Banger Boom, I think. And of course, they've they've recently appeared together on um, well, what everybody else seems to be saying is a fantastic DVD extra, and that was on the Mask of Mandragora release. And it was some kind of comedy sketch where they dressed up as women. Oh yes, oh, comedy with your it. little fingers <laughs> in the air waving inverted commas. Yes, I know. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So they're, they're clearly friends or colleagues, um, and yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with for the Sarah Jane adventures. Hopefully, nothing quite as obscure or diverse as that DVD release. <laughs> well, but, I, um, I don't think we can really say SJA is going to be anything obscure. It's such a fascinating contrast between mm-hmm. the Matt Smith season and the new series of Sarah Jane Adventures that. Whereas Absolutely. Matt Smith, we had a lot of new writers, all new directors, whereas Sarah Jane Adventures are sticking with what they know. I mean, they've even got RTD writing some stuff and they've got writers that have written for the series before 
that yeah. they've pretty much got a formula down and they're sticking with it. No, I think you're absolutely right, especially with Russell T. Davis, who created the series in the first place. And, of course, he's never written a script for the Sarah J. Adventures before. Really? So it'll be interesting. This is his first foray into writing for this particular series. I think he's probably had some kind of control over it. I seem to remember the first couple of series. He was... I'm not sure if he was the exec producer or something, but I have a feeling Phil Falls took over for season three. And so RTD took a, an even further a step back. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, another RTD script because by the time this actually makes it onto our screens, it will be ooh, a good couple of years, no, a couple of years, just over a year or coming up to a year since we've seen anything Doctor Who related written by Russell T. Davis. Well, that's right too. And, and, and plus also too, um, we've, we've already heard that Katie Manning is going to be appearing in this uh, series reprising her role as uh, Joe Grant. But, of course, Matt Smith is going to be in this series, and I suppose having episode three, Death of the Doctor, as a title, kind of gives it away a little <laughs> bit. So, um, to me, it's, it really seems like we're going to get a very similar story to the uh, Tenet story from last year, with the Doctor sort of being there and not being there type of thing. We're assuming, of course, that the Doctor in question is actually um, you know, our Doctor. It could be a different Doctor. Uh, Russell T. Davies thoroughly enjoys putting in you know, strange titles, you know, the Doctor's Daughter. Well, she really is Doctor, kind of, you know, (laughs) the death of the Doctor. This could be some other Doctor, who knows? Um, I think it's just a sneaky way of him actually being able to write for Matt Smith's Doctor, (laughs) that's all, because he never had the chance. Um, I think the the title of the final episode is also interesting, Goodbye Sarah Jane Smith. Now, I I think it's been announced that Series 5 and Series 6 are happening as well. So um, I just wonder quite what's going on there. Goodbye Sarah Jane, where's she off to? Well... I think it's something we've seen throughout every series of Sarah Jane Smith. I mean, we've had stuff like the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith in previous series. Yeah. That while Sarah Jane Smith hasn't been, I suppose, a pivotal part of the series, there are certain episodes that are devoted to exploring her backstory and, and whether it's canonical or not, giving some depth to the Sarah Jane character. You know, we've seen stuff in the past where, you know, she's been responsible or, or part of the death of a friend on a pier. We've had the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, for example. So every series has had something that's really played with what we understand about the Sarah Jane Smith character. So I'm, I'm really seeing that we're going to be having something to do with that in uh, Series 4 as well. I think Sarah Jane, for me, is has been something that I've I've really not expected to enjoy. And, and, and yet I've watched each series and, and enjoyed pretty much every single episode. So I think Series 4 as well is, is is highly unlikely to be any different for me so yeah and it's it's a nice little filler before well probably before the christmas special do we know when this is actually due to be broadcast well is by the looks of it we're going to be year? seeing this in the next three months um it, it's going to yeah. be in um Excellent. It, it's going to be in your autumn which what our spring here in australia so mm-hmm. what three months from now we'll be reviewing some sarah jane adventures <laughs> Our last bit of news for this episode is probably a little bit controversial because I think we've got some strong opinions about this. It talks about the uh, two entertain policies for the upcoming releases of the uh, 11th Doctor stories, both in their individual three episodes per disc format and the upcoming box set. Now, they've made an incredibly interesting decision where they've said, okay, for the stories we're releasing for three episodes per disc or, or two episodes per disc, individual releases we're going to take the next time trailers out but when you guys want to buy the box set you'll get the next time trailers back now i I don't really understand that i mean even at the very base level of saying okay if we're going to be releasing three stories on a individual release at least have the last episode on that disc have the next time trailer to get the people want want to buy the next one. I'm not sure what you think about that, Dan's, but I'm I'm really upset that they're making changes to what was broadcast on TV because I regard what's on TV as the canonical type of release. Sure. And 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 any changes to that, you've got to have a pretty damn good reason for wanting to do it. Well, yeah. I mean, as, as a viewer, I'm not really bothered. I have to say. Um, however, I don't understand the decision for, for for what you say. I mean, if someone does actually start watching. Uh, episodes of Doctor Who on the vanilla releases as and when they come out. And I, I think it's a great idea to actually tag on, you know, well, you know, if you enjoyed this, you might like the next episode, which is going to be in the next DVD. Yeah. So go out and buy that one. I think I think that is sensible, certainly. But as a fan and a viewer, um, I would much rather them not have next time 
uh, trailers on any of the episodes, either on transmission and certainly, certainly not on the DVDs. Because, you know, (laughs) I I don't want to know. For me, it's almost a little bit of a a spoiler. And I was surprised. I remember seeing right at the back of, right at the end of um, episode one of, of, of series one, you know, Rose, I was quite surprised to see you know, maybe 30 seconds or so of episode two trailed. You know, you were going to get that anyway, pretty much throughout that week. So you get to see, you know, a little bit of a um, a taster of what's to come. I, I certainly don't see the need for it on DVDs. No, I, I think they've learned a lot, even during season one of New Doctor Who. If you remember the outcry back when we had the Slovene episode and they showed the next time trailer pretty much as soon as the episode finished and... Yeah. And and the BBC received multiple complaints saying, my goodness, we know the Doctor survives in the next one. How dare you show us that? I mean, it seemed quite obvious at the time and quite weird that people complain about that. But as a result of that, the BBC from then on, when they had two-part stories, only showed the, the next time trailer after the credits. And even during the you know, BBC voiceover, they said, you know, tune out now if you don't want to see what happens next week. And I think that really extends the DVD releases, that there's no reason why you can't have the next time trailers on the DVDs. And now that the BBC know that the two-parters shouldn't really spoil right up front what the next episode's going to be about, that that can translate just as well to the DVD releases. Um, um, just, Just from a purely younger perspective too, my kids love the next time trailers. And I'll say right up front, we download every episode as it's screened in the UK. And we'd watch the next time trailer and they go, right, when can we watch that? We want to watch it now. And they go, well, no, sorry, guys. You're going to have to wait till next week. And just the anticipation there, it, it builds up so much incredible anticipation and incredible excitement about the next week's episode. And sure, with the vanilla releases, you can see it on the DVD and you can see it right away. But I really think a lot of people are watching Doctor Who on the vanilla releases is the same way they're watching it on TV, that there might be a not a whole week gap, but certainly some form of gap between watching the first episode on the DVD and the second episode. And that's where the next time trailers really come into their own, that they build up the anticipation and the excitement about watching Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, as I said, there's two ways of looking at it. Um, I, personally, I'm really not bothered. I mean, and that is that is a, a personal opinion. I would rather not see any trailers. I'd rather go into every single episode fresh. I would rather have not have found out Matt Smith was the Doctor until the 11th hour screened. <laughs> um, but the, 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 the other issue, the other issue is whether or not it's sensible, whether it works for sales, whether... A, as you say, it creates the right kind of buzz about next week's episode, which clearly is the view of the BBC because they include next time trailers. Why they're not doing it on the vanilla discs, I really don't know. It doesn't, I mean, the news item that we uh, we took this from doesn't go into any kind of reasons as to why they're doing that. Um, but as I said, personally, I, I really would rather not see anything. I'd rather see all my Doctor Who fresh. However, I do understand why they do it. Am I that concerned about it? Is it going to affect the continuing or the continued existence of Doctor Who? No. <laughs> There's so many ways I could disagree with that, but I won't bore you with it. Um, just, just one last thing yeah. there too in that news item, that they say they're going to make a slight change to the way the sound effects appear in the opening credits that they're going to be less lightning effects, I believe, that they're not going to be having the crack of thunder and lightning over uh, Matt and Karen's names. So they're going to make the credits even more subdued and, I suppose, background-ish than what we've seen on the televised version. Yeah, but they, they are going to reinstate uh, the lightning sounds on the box set, which will be released you know, October, November this year, I'm sure. I'm not entirely certain why this is going to be the case. I mean, I, what they're saying is that these particular effects were added shortly before the transmitted version. Therefore, perhaps maybe the DVDs had already got into production at that point. Possibly. Uh, yeah. with, with, without. So maybe that's the reason why there. Maybe there's nothing more to it than purely a timing issue. Um, and certainly with the caveat at the end of that article to say that the change is expected to be corrected for the box set version certainly implies it is nothing less than a timing issue. Well, if there's any more reason to not buy the vanilla releases and to buy the box set releases, <laughs> I, I don't know what is. This, this year certainly has, has brought that to the fore. If you want the episodes you saw on TV, buy the box set. Don't buy the vanilla releases.
that might be it for this episode of the Doctor Podcast. We're certainly back in our weekly mode now. Back to what the DWP is about during the off-season. News, reviews, anything probably not concerning Matt Smith, really. So we've certainly talked about Matt Smith a lot in the last 13 weeks, so it's time to get back to talking about classic series, news, geek outs, all the sort of stuff that you used to enjoy when we were on the WhoCast, just transferred to the DWP format. As much as I thoroughly enjoy talking about Matt Smith's era and I was really excited about this series, I am actually now looking forward to going back into the classic series and uh, a few of the spin-offs and so on. It's going to be going to be quite interesting over the next few weeks. Next week on the Doctor Who Podcast, we have a couple of interviews for you. Charlie Ross, who has appeared in a couple of Big Finish audios, and Ryan Hendrick. Uh, these are a couple of holdovers from a recent convention that Tom attended, so uh, please enjoy them. Well, Trev, I really do think that is about it for this episode of the Doctor Who podcast. Now, I, I know this is going to be severely edited, but listener, you may be interested to know we've been speaking for over an hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> so this particular recording, hopefully is going to be nicely cut down just to the real gold moments. There you are. And if you don't think that's true, send in an email, as per <laughs> usual, to feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast.com. I have absolute faith in Tom and his editing skills. He's going to work wonders with this episode. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope so, or else it's going to be an exceptionally long, boring version <laughs> of this particular podcast, but there you go. Anyway, make certain you do join us again next week for whatever it is that we have in store. Uh, we need to check our schedule to make absolutely certain. In the meantime, all I've got to say is, Trev, it's been wonderful once again sitting in this camper van speaking to you about all things Doctor Who this week. Absolutely ditto. I agree totally. Wonderful. And Tom, even though you're not here, you know, we've been talking to you throughout the edit and, you know, it's been like you've been here. Anyway, we'll speak to you again very soon. Bye-bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.